All right, well, we are in our second week of a sermon series on the book of Ephesians. So second week of a book of a sermon series on the book of Ephesians. Um, part of what you need to know about this is, um, you know, I think as a church over the last 10 years, we've done, a, we've done a pretty good job of being winsome in the way that we talk about the gospel and the way that we talk about some of the challenging issues of Christianity. And, uh, and every now and then, we have hit upon some things which are kind of a little bit challenging, a little bit hard. And the truth is that Christianity is filled with those kind of things. It's filled with all sorts of things that are challenging for us, like, you know, loving people who are unlovable, tithing, um, you know, the reality of sin and hell, things like that. And so part of me, as I sort of thought about the past and our history of what we've preached through, I wanted to pick a book that was pretty dense. Um, in fact, this book of Ephesians... When I, when I chose it um, a few weeks ago to go through as a sermon series, um, I thought, you know what, I'm going to start having my quiet time in the mornings through the book of Ephesians. And really quickly, what I found out is that it was incredibly difficult to have my quiet time in it because it's just so dense. Like, it's super full of really big theological ideas. And it's not like it's, you know, chapter one is theological idea one, and chapter two is theological idea two, and it sort of spreads them out. It's like clause after clause after clause of big theological ideas. So I don't know if you've ever been to the restaurant Fogo de Chao down in Buckhead, but it's this Brazilian steakhouse. So good. It's awesome. And, uh, and they have a salad bar that is literally a mountain of like countless different types of you know, vegetables and different things. And you couldn't begin to eat one piece of everything on that entire salad bar. On top of that, the, uh, the people that, you know, walk around the uh, dining room have these skewers with, I don't remember how many, like 11 different cuts of meat. And so you've got this massive salad bar, you get these 11 cuts of meat, and what you realize, you know, into your third plate of the evening is you're like, I'm not even going to be able to get anywhere close to eating every single thing that this restaurant has to offer in this giant buffet. And if I did, it would just probably kill me. And so... There's just a sense in which we're going to go through the book of Ephesians, and you just have to know that it's fogo de chao theological, right? Like, you just, we're not going to be able to cover everything. And so I would encourage you um, to ask Bob, who is here somewhere in the room, uh, maybe come up and ask me, come up and ask somebody else. If you want to dig deeper into the book, then uh, unfortunately, we're not going to be able to do it here in the sermons. We're going to hit some highlights, uh, but we'd love to help you go deeper into that book of Ephesians. Um, Last week, we talked about really sort of the starting point of Paul. Now, First of all, it's, uh, he's writing this book in 62 AD. He's writing it from prison in Rome, right? So his physical situation is not so hot, right? And he doesn't know this probably, but he's going to die of beheading probably less than two years later. He died in 64 AD. And what's interesting about this letter, he's writing to the Ephesian church or church as, which is probably more likely. Um, it's this really optimistic, hopeful letter. Right? In fact, um, commentators are really clear about saying like, he's not really writing to a specific issue or a specific problem, which a lot of his letters do address, but rather it's just sort of this overarching Christianity 101. That's kind of what the book is. And part of the reason it's a Christianity 101 is because this is a, a Gentile group of believers who are fairly new converts. They don't have a Jewish background. And so he's writing to really talk to them about the basics or the fundamentals of Christianity, and he began last week by saying, I want to call you and invite you to praise God because he's chosen you as, a, as daughters and sons, and he's chosen you for redemption and chosen you for restoration. He's chosen you to be blameless and innocent in his sight, right? This is all good news. And then today, we're going to look at some other things um, that we see that are part of this sort of picture of the basics and the fundamentals of Christianity. 
We're going to be looking at verses 15 through 23 of Ephesians chapter 1. You can turn there if you want to, or you can look it up on the screen either way. Beginning in Ephesians 1, verses 15 through 23. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Let's take a moment. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would um, give us your Holy Spirit this morning um, to give us spiritual vision, to open the eyes of our hearts, um, that we might see the truth about who you are um, and the truth about what it is that you seek to do in our lives. Uh, Father, I pray that this, um, this understanding, the spiritual eyesight, wouldn't simply be um, a bare knowledge um, about you, but that it would be an experience of you and of the hope and of the power that you offer to us. And so, Father, we pray all these things in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. So, in July of 1961, the Green Bay Packers went back to training camp. Uh, The year before, they had come just this close to winning the Super Bowl. They lost in the fourth quarter. They had been winning in the fourth quarter against the Philadelphia Eagles, and they lost at the very end of the game. The Eagles came back and beat them. And so you can imagine how, you know, these uh, 38 guys who had arrived at summer training camp for the Packers, you can imagine how they spent uh, the last six months. They probably spent the last six months thinking, if I had only done that, maybe we would have won. Or maybe if we had run that play, we would have won. Or maybe if we had run sort of this different wrinkle in the offense or wrinkle in the defense, then maybe we had won. They, they probably were thinking about, you know, we've got to begin where we ended if we want to try to win the Super Bowl in 1962, right? You can just imagine all the things they were thinking about. What's interesting is to, to see what Vince Lombardi, this historic coach, their historic coach, to see what he was thinking. He had a, a different idea. In his best-selling book, When Pride Still Mattered, A Life of Vince Lombardi, author David Marinus explains what happened when Lombardi walked into training camp in the summer of 1961. And this is a quote. He took nothing for granted. He began a tradition of starting from scratch, assuming that the players were blank slates who carried over no knowledge from the year before. He began with the most elemental statement of all. Gentlemen, he said, holding a pigskin up in his right hand, this is a football. This is a football. Famous quote. Lombardi was coaching a group of three dozen professional athletes who just months prior had come within minutes of winning the biggest prize their sport could offer, and yet he started from the very beginning. Lombardi's methodical coverage of the fundamentals continued throughout training camp. Each player reviewed how to block and tackle. They opened up the playbook and started from page one. At some point, Max McGee, 
The Packers Pro Bowl wide receiver joked, uh, Coach, could you slow down a little? You're going too fast for us. That's total sarcasm. Lombardi reportedly cracked a smile, but continued his obsession with the basics all the same. His team would become the best in the league at the tasks that everyone else took for granted. So his team would become the best at the tasks that everyone else took for granted. Six months later, the Green Bay Packers beat the New York Giants 37 to nothing to win the Super Bowl, the NFL championship. 37 to nothing, built upon the fundamentals. The 1961 season was the beginning of Vince Lombardi's reign as one of the greatest football coaches of all time. He would never lose in the playoffs again. Never lost in the playoffs again. In total, Lombardi won five NFL championships or Super Bowls in the span of seven years, including three in a row. He never coached a team with a losing record. This pattern of focusing on the basics has been a hallmark of many successful coaches. For example, basketball legends John Wooden and Phil Jackson were known for having a similar obsession with the fundamentals. Wooden even went so far as to teach his players how to put on their socks and tie their shoes, right? That's a little over-fundamentalistic. Anyway, however, it is not just football and basketball where the strategy is useful. Throughout our lives, a focus on the fundamentals is what determines our results, or a focus on the fundamentals, the basics, is what determines really where we end up. And in this book of Ephesians, what Paul is doing from prison in 62 AD is he's writing to the Ephesian churches, and he's really writing about the fundamentals, about the basics of Christianity, about Christianity 101. Last week, we looked at you know, sort of how he talked about the fact that you're chosen for redemption. You're chosen to be seen as holy and blameless in his sight, right? We looked at those things. And this week, he goes on to a couple more fundamentals, a couple more essentials of the Christian life, of Christianity 101. And the first thing that we see that he writes about in verses 15 through 23 is that the Ephesian Christians would simply know God, right? And that we too, listening here 2,000 years later, that we would know God. Christianity 101. Listen to verse 17. Here's what he says. He says, I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. Let me read it one more time. I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. Not just know about him, not just know facts about him, but you would know him. Because fundamentally what Christianity is about is it's about knowing God. It's about walking with God, even in the same way that Adam and Eve were created to walk with God in the Garden of Eden. Does that make sense? That's what we have been called to. It's what we were created for. We were created to walk with God and to know him, not just to know about him. Theology is good, right? It's necessary. But fundamentally, we're called to a relationship with God. John 17, 3, Jesus, on the last night of his life, is praying, and listen to the content of his prayer. He says this, now this is eternal life, or this is the meaning of life, this is what life is all about, now this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you've sent. Jesus absolutely meant that we would have a relationship with God, that we would have a relationship with his Father. He said that's the meaning of life, right? So whether you're a banker, whether you're a lawyer, whether you're a teacher, whether you're a mother or a father or a coach or a student, the meaning of your life, the purpose of your life, is to know God relationally, to walk with him. Listen to what Jeremiah says in the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, he says this, or thus says the Lord, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom, 
Let the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches, but let him who boasts boast in this, that he understands and knows me, right? From the beginning of the Bible in the Old Testament, right, to the New Testament, to this day, the goal, the purpose, the meaning of life for us is that we would know not just about God, but that we would know God. Now, to, in the next couple of days, Wilson and Monty Meads, I don't know where you guys are out there, but Wilson and Monty are moving to Lookout Mountain. It's a very sad day for those of us who know Wilson and Monty. But in honor of this, I'm going to use a, um, a New England Patriots illustration, Wilson. Anybody who knows Wilson knows he is not a fan of the Patriots. Anyway, but those of you who know anything about football know that uh, the, the quarterback of the Patriots is a guy named Tom Brady. We've got a picture of him up on the screen. So Tom Brady, I'm sorry, he's just one of the best quarterbacks in the history of football. Like, I'm not a Patriots fan either, but he is, right? And so what's interesting is I guarantee you there are lots of guys from Boston who absolutely love Tom Brady, and they can tell you all of his stats. They can tell you, you know, where he was drafted and what year he was drafted. They can tell you what his stats were in college. They can tell you what his stats have been you know, over the course of his career in the NFL. They can tell you what his completion percentage is. They can tell you how many Super Bowls he's won. They can tell you, you know, how many touchdowns he threw in 2007. They can tell you all those stats about him. Maybe they even shook his hand one time and had him sign a mini helmet. I don't know, right? But there's a big difference between knowing Tom Brady and knowing about Tom Brady. The people that really know Tom Brady are his wife. That's his wife right there. Giselle Bunchen is her name. And, uh, and there are two children whose names I think are Ben and Vivian. They know Tom Brady, right? They know what he's like before he has his first cup of coffee in the morning, right? You know, they know what he's like when he gets awakened in the middle of the night. They know what he's like on vacation. They have a real relationship with him, right? They don't just know about him. They know him, right? That's the point that Paul is talking about here in this passage. He's saying the meaning of your life what I desire for them, the fundamental sort of nature of Christianity is that we're, we're created to know God, right? To walk with him, to have a relationship with him. One of the most monumental uh, sort of periods of time in my life was the summer after my junior year of college. Had a lot of big stuff happen, made some big life changes. And I went home that summer and just really had an awakening is the best thing I can say. And, uh, and I, it you know, may have been when I sort of really became a Christian. I don't, I don't know how to answer that question entirely. But part of what I realized that summer, um, partially from reading through the book of John and running across that, that verse, John chapter 17, verse 3, uh, where Jesus prayed that they would know God, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you've sent, is I realized that the Christian life wasn't about me sort of adhering to a moral standard, right? It wasn't about me being good enough to be liked by God, it wasn't about me being bad enough that God wouldn't like me. It wasn't about me having the best theology, believing the right things, and not believing the wrong things about him. But fundamentally, the, the awakening that I experienced that summer was an awakening that what God had called me to is an actual relationship with him. That's a totally different paradigm. Jesus did talk about it, right? He said, many of you are going to come to me that day and say, Lord, Lord, and I'm going to say, depart from me, I never knew you. These are going to be people who had good theology, Right? They knew a lot about God. They even did some good stuff. Their life was filled with morality and some works. But he says, I didn't know you. Right? That's what we're being called is to know God. And so let me pause really quickly and say this, that, uh, that knowing God is the product of a few different things. And I'm going to talk about a couple of these things very quickly. How do we know God? 
Well, one of the ways in which we know God is through Scripture, right? We know it by reading the Bible. We believe that the Bible is God's word to us. It's God's revelation of who he is and who we are and how it is that he interacts with us through these uh, men and women who have written the Holy Scriptures. We believe that the Bible is God's word to us. And so if you want to know God, you actually do need to read the Bible. Um, when Krista and I um, had been dating for a little while, I went off to graduate school in St. Louis. She was still living in Chattanooga up on Lookout Mountain at Covenant College. And one of the ways in which we communicate is we wrote lots of letters back and forth. And in those letters back and forth, what we were doing, um, though I don't know to what degree we knew it, but we were revealing bits and pieces of who we really were to the other person that nobody else would have known, right? But we wrote letters. We read the letter that they wrote to us. We then responded with another letter. There was this communication that went back and forth where we were revealing to the other person who we were, right? All these letters. I think Krista actually saved a lot of the letters. Um, They're kind of funny and a little bit cheesy these days. But anyway, not only did we write letters back and forth, but we also talked on the phone, right? And so that's the second thing. How do we know God? We know God also through prayer, right? And so while we were, you know, when I was in St. Louis and she was on Lookout Mountain, I, you know, in my roommates, this is back in the days before cell phones, you just had sort of a phone in your house, and you had to choose a phone service to go with. And back in the day, there were these battles between AT&T and these other groups. And I would switch our phone service, you know, every couple of months, determined, you know, based upon who had the cheapest phone service, because you had to pay per minute. And so I remember vividly um, when the company we switched to had phone service where it was 12 cents a minute. And I remember thinking, this is awesome. My phone bill for a lot of those months, even for 12 cents a minute, ended up being like over $200. So I'll let you do the math on what that was, but we were talking back and forth in order to get to know one another. And so two of the ways in which we know God are through Scripture, through prayer. We know Him through the Spirit in us, right? The Bible's very clear, 1 Corinthians 6, 19, that our bodies are the temple of the Holy Spirit. Part of what the Holy Spirit does is reveal to us who God is. We know God through fellow believers, right? If the church is His body and Christ is the head, then we know God through fellow believers believers. We know God by looking at Jesus, right? If Jesus is the image of the invisible God, as we're told in Scripture, then part of the way in which we know God is by looking at His Son. Romans 1 says we can know God to some degree by looking at nature, right? There's all these ways. The list goes on and on. But primarily, let me encourage you with this last thing. The primary way in which you can come to know God is by treating Him like a person, right? To to afford Him the same relational privilege that you would afford a friend, right? So part of what I would encourage you to do is, as cheesy as this sounds, I think it's true, um, to set up time, to set apart time to be with God. Maybe it's in the morning to read the Bible and to pray, right? But to commit to that time, just like you commit to it if you're going to meet somebody else for breakfast, right? In the same way that you might meet someone and go walk along the river at Ridge Ferry, maybe you set up a time on your Google calendar say, and say, all right, at 1.30 on Thursday, I'm going to walk with God and I'm going to pray to him. I'm going to spend some time with him. And so fundamentally, I think knowing God is just like knowing a real person. And so I would encourage you to try to treat your relationship with him in that same way. So again, Paul begins by saying one of the fundamentals of Christianity is a reminder that you were created to know God, not just about him, but to know him, to have a relationship with him. Now, this is eternal life, that you may know the only true God, right? That's it. The second thing that we see Paul talking about in terms of these fundamentals of Christianity is he also says, it's my prayer that that they and that we would know the hope to which we've been called. And so we're called to know God, but we're also called to know the hope that we have in him. So listen to verse 18. Verse 18 says this, I pray that the eyes of your heart 
And let me just say that an easy way to interpret that is um, that your eyes of your heart may be enlightened, that you would have spiritual vision, right? Or the ability to spiritually see, that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people. And so part of what Paul is saying here is another part of Christianity 101 is that you'd know the hope to which God has called you, right? And let me just call time out here and say very quickly that most of us have hope, but our hope is ultimately founded in things that just aren't going to last, right? And so your hope may be in your physical strength. So you may play a sport, you may work out, and you may not realize it, but in reality what you're standing upon is your physical strength, right? That's your hope. Or maybe your hope is in your financial well-being. You know, maybe you come from families that are very well off, and maybe ultimately you stand secure in life because you think, I've got all this money, right? Or maybe you've earned a lot of money, and so your hope is in your finances. Uh, you know, or maybe you find your hope in a relationship that you have with your children or a relationship that you have with your spouse. Part of what you need to understand, those are all probably good things, but if you try to build your hope upon them, each of those things will fail. Each of those things will fall away. None of those things is transcendent, right? None of those things was built to bear the weight of divinity. And so what God has called us to is to find and to know and to experience the hope that he has called us to, the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people. And so he's called us to know hope, the hope that he's called us to. Let me make one more clarification. The hope that Paul is talking about, the hope that we read about in Scripture, is not wishful thinking, right? That's how we use hope in our language. We think about it as, well, like I hope that Alabama wins the national championship this year. I hope maybe that guy will ask me out. That's not what this hope is talking about. Um, And and let me give a quick illustration because I built it into the PowerPoint. It's kind of funny. There's a fantastic movie that came out in 1995. It's called Dumb and Dumber. Uh, This highly critically acclaimed movie starring Jim Carrey and Jeff Daniels. But there's this great scene in the movie where Jim Carrey's character has driven across the country to pursue this woman who has a crush on and to kind of turn some money over to her that he found. Long story. Anyway, but his name is Lloyd in the movie and her name is Mary. And so he finally gets out to Colorado after this, you know, long trip, part of which was made on this tiny little motorcycle. And he gets out there and he sees her. And of course, he's been dreaming about her and he's sort of, sort of in his mind, he thinks he's in love with her. And the following interaction takes place, Lloyd talking to Mary. I want to ask you a question, straight out, flat out. I want you to give me the honest answer. What do you think the chances are of a guy like, uh, of a guy like me and a girl like you ending up together? And she says this, well, Lloyd, that's difficult to say. We really don't, and he interrupts her, and he says, hit me with it. Just give it to me straight. I came a long way to see you, Mary. Just the least you can do is level with me. What are my chances? And the music's sort of playing in the background, and she says, not good. And at that, the background music sort of stops. He sort of takes a big, deep breath and gulps, his mouth sort of twitching a little bit, and he says, you mean not good like one out of a hundred? And she says, I'd say more like one out of a million. And there's sort of a long pause, and he's sort of processing what he's heard, and he says this, so you're telling me there's a chance. So he's, he's, that's, what, that's how we sort of think about hope. That's not biblical hope. Biblical hope has that element of an optimistic expectation, but it's much more than optimistic expectation. It's ultimately confident expectation. It's a confident expectation 
that something's going to come through, that something's going to happen, that it's really going to occur, right? And so I'm going to read through a list of some of the things we can have a confident expectation about, especially things that Paul talks about. In Romans 8, Paul talks about the fact that we can have the hope of the restoration of the earth and of all things. In other words, that there'll be a happy ending for it all. Romans 8, 19 through 21 says this, For the creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it. What's interesting here is God is the one who's hoping. And so he says, This hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and the glory of the children of God. And so one of the things that we can have hope about is that there's a happy ending, right? That everything wrong will be made right, right? The restoration of all things. Another thing that Paul talks about is the hope of the resurrection. 1 Thessalonians 4, verses 12 through 14, is a great passage in which Paul says, Brothers and sisters, we do not want you to be uninformed about those who sleep in death, so that you do not grieve like the rest of mankind who have no hope, right? Again, they don't have an optimistic anticipation. They don't have a confident expectation. For we believe that Jesus died and rose again, and so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. We have a hope, a confident expectation that we will be raised just like Jesus has been raised, that those we love who have died in the Lord will rise again as well, that we'll see them again, right? The hope of the resurrection. It's not just a, man, I hope it works out that way. You know, you're telling me there's a chance, but there's a confident expectation. The hope of access to God through Jesus. 2 Corinthians 3, 9 through 12, if the ministry that has brought condemnation was glorious, that is the law, how much more glorious is the ministry that brings righteousness? The spirit's application of Christ, sort of, you know, his life, his death, his resurrection, The Spirit applies that to us. For what was glorious has no glory now in comparison with the surpassing glory. And if what was transitory came with glory, how much greater is the glory of that which lasts? Therefore, since we have such a hope, such an optimistic anticipation and a confident expectation, we should be very bold, right? We we, We should have this boldness, this hope of being able to come before God, of Jesus earning access for us to stand before the God of the universe. Paul says we should have that type of hope. And there's, a, there's any number of other things we're told to have hope about. Salvation, adoption, forgiveness, propitiation, which is this idea that God's wrath has been satisfied and removed. Expiation, this idea that guilt has been removed and our guilt has been placed on Jesus. The hope that all things work together for the good of them that love God and are called according to his purpose. We can have hope, a confident expectation in all of these things. And so Paul's prayer for the Ephesian church is that they would know the hope to which God has called them. God's desire for us, however, is not simply to believe that we can have hope, but rather that we would actually experience, that we would really know that hope, right? And so Paul says that part of fundamental Christianity, basic Christianity, is knowing God. It's knowing hope. But then finally, he talks about the fact that it's knowing God's power. It's knowing his power. Listen to verses 19 through 21. And his incomparably great power for us who believe. That power is the same as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every name that is invoked not only in the present age but also in the one to come. And so part of what Paul is saying here is you can have hope, right? And you can know ultimately God's power. 
And again, let me call time out here and say that if, if what you're standing upon is your power, you need to understand that eventually your power runs out, right? Just talked with Luis this morning who ran a marathon yesterday, and he said, I didn't quite train as much as I should have trained. And he said, about mile 22, he said, I just sort of hit a wall, right? My power gave out. And one of the things we talked about was a story about another friend of mine who ran a marathon without actually training for it. And at mile 16, he was on his hands and knees going across a bridge when the, the car that picks up all the sort of trailing people came and picked him up. And Luis made the point, he's like, yeah, he said, he said, you just can't run a marathon on your own unless you've really trained for it, right? And so the idea here is not that we trust in our own power or in our own ability, but we trust in God's power. And listen to how Paul defines this power. First of all, the word power is dunameos, which of course sounds like dynamite. That's where we get the word dynamite. And so Paul says that we would know God's power. But he doesn't just say that, he would know, that we would know God's power but he says that we would know his great power. And the Greek word there is megathos, like megaphone or you know, mega, right? Really big, huge. And so part of what Paul is saying is that we would know God's great, huge power. But he doesn't just end there. He goes further to say this, that we would know his incomparably great power. And the word for incomparably there, that's how it's translated, is hyperbolon, hyperbolon, or hyper that we would know, and it's defined as his overcasting power. The idea there is like if you gave the Incredible Hulk a baseball bat and you put him at home plate and pitched it to him, and if the Hulk made contact, you know that when he hit the ball, it would go far, far past the wall, right? And it would go miles and miles past the stadium. It's sort of this extravagant strength. And so what Paul is saying here is that we would know God's extravagant, great power. He goes on to say that same power was the same power that God used to raise Jesus from the dead. How much power is required to raise somebody from the dead? A lot. The same power that God used to place Jesus at his right hand in heaven, where he, Jesus, rules over all earthly and heavenly powers, rulers and dominions, not just now, but forevermore. That power, that megathos, hyperbellon, overcasting power, that power, that great, much, much more than enough power, is not just power in and of itself, but it's power for you, is what it says here, right? It says his incomparably great power for us who believe. It's for you, it's for me. And so this God, the God who by his power raised Jesus from the dead, this God who by his power with a word spoke the universe into existence, this God who by his power rescued the Israelites out of slavery, this God who by his power holds the atoms of the universe together this very moment. This God and all of his power is for you. That's what Paul is saying. Hear that? Think about that for a minute. Right? Think about everything that you're afraid of. Think about everything that you're fearful of. Think about everything that you have anxiety over. Think about everything that you feel insecure about. Think about it all. And hear Paul when he says that you need, that, you, that he desires, that he prays that you would know God's incomparably great power for you. Just think about that for a minute, that all of this power is for you. It's all for me, right? That God is upholding us, right? That God is fighting for us against whatever your enemies are, that this, this amazing, unsurpassing, greater than you can possibly imagine, much more than is even required power is for you and for me, it's exactly why Romans 8, it's why Paul could say this in Romans 8. 
He says, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? If God's power is for you, then everybody else's power is a distant second, right? If God is for you, who in the world can be against you? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. It's his, within his power to do so. Who is it to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God by God's power, who is indeed interceding for us, right? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword, as it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long, we are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I'm sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Because of God's power, his great power, his more than enough, exceeding, superfluous, great power is for you and it's for me. That's good news, right? His power is for us, to protect us to save us, to preserve us, to raise us again from the dead, to seat us with his Son in heaven. His power is for you. Let's take a moment. Let's pray. Father, we struggle to believe uh, the fundamentals, the true fundamentals of Christianity. We, We struggle to believe the good news, that we can actually know you and have a relationship with you, and yet it's the very thing that you tell us in the Old and New Testament is, is true. It's what we were called to. So, Father, you're inviting us into a relationship with you. Empower us, I pray, to respond. Empower us to believe what feels somewhat unbelievable, that you want to have a relationship with us, even though we're rebellious and broken and sinful. Father, please help us to walk with you and know you. Father, I pray that we would um, not only believe that hope exists, but that we would believe uh, that that hope exists for us, that we can experience the hope of the resurrection, that we can experience the hope of restoration, that we can experience the hope of knowing that you amazingly work all things together for our good. Father, please let us know that hope. And finally, Father, um, it's so hard for us to believe um, that you would tolerate us, much less that you would use your power to sustain us and to strengthen us and to protect us. Father, but I pray that you would give us your spirit today that we would not only believe that your power is for us, but that we would feel your power working in us. So, Father, it's in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, that we pray all of these things today. Amen.